G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. It'll settle at four and a half to five, depending on the markets and, and whatnot. I, I think you're already seeing Phoenix, Vegas, right? They're, they're four and a half already. Florida has been a little slow to follow. You're kind of low fours right now, but I, I want to say everyone wants a four and a half right now or better. And you know, uh, given given where interest rates where we see the curve going, I think that's that should be kind of where pricing ends up shaking out. Obviously, unless they decide to keep raising rates more, then then that that changes. But I, I feel good about that four and a half to five range. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of chatting with Zamir Kazi. Now, Zamir started his career in real estate investing way back in 2013 after attending Florida State University, and he started buying and flipping duplexes. He formed a company originally called Berkshire Property Holdings in 2014, and then later rebranded that to ZMR Capital to acquire and redevelop multifamily properties across the Florida state. In the past nine years, he has grown ZMR Capital to acquire over $1.5 billion. That's 
Elizabeth B. with a billion. <laughs> He's also been a recipient of the Globe Street 50 Under 40 and is an active investor and board member of multiple early stage startups. And he also contributes significant amount of his time and resources to several different charities. So I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show today to share his incredible wealth of knowledge and what he's built from scratch. But enough of me, let's get him out here. G'day, Zamir. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Great. Thanks for having me on, Reed. It's a pleasure. Hey, my pleasure. And we were just talking a little bit in the green room before we press record. Where are you dialing in from? Because we actually we actually live down the street from one another, but yet you're doing deals across the country. What's going on? Uh, so I'm actually in Tampa right now. We we Our corporate headquarters is in Tampa. So I'm, I'm here visiting the office and the, the great month of August, uh, you know, the, the weather is great in, in Florida this time of year. So uh, we're here. Uh, I'll be back in Manhattan Beach and uh, hopefully we can we can grab a drink together soon. But uh, be, we'll be back in, uh, in great weather soon, hopefully. Well, I want to get into how you've set up the company because I think that might be an interesting you know, thread to the conversation today. You, you know, you, you, you went to uni in Florida, that makes sense. When I when I I've never met you before, we only just started talking, and you said that you live here in LA. So maybe give us a little bit of background on how that transition happened. Were you, were you did you grow up in LA and then just went to uni out there and then built the company out there? No, so I, I grew up in Orlando. I was basically born and raised in Kissimmee. A lot of people don't know where Kissimmee is, so I say Orlando. Um, and then went to Florida State. Uh, I actually did not graduate college. I dropped out my last semester of my senior year. Um, I did pre-med, you know, as all Indian families require doctor, lawyer, engineer, those are my three options, you know? <laughs> uh, and, uh, last semester I was like, I'm not doing this for another 10 years and, um, ended up, uh, working in a sales floor at a call center selling vacation packages and, um, started my own company doing that made some money, you know, and, and my dad's like, look, you got to start investing in real estate for mailbox money, you know? And, and so ended up buying my first duplex, um, that was $20,000 out of short sale. Uh, the renters were paying 300 on one side, 500 on the other, you know, and, and didn't know anything about real estate. I joined bigger pockets and then went, uh, um, went on YouTube and learned how to renovate this thing myself. It took entirely way too long, but you know, I made cabinets from scratch and fixed corners and walls and killed cockroaches. And I was like, man, this is fun. And, and, and fixed it up, sold it and bought the one next door and then continued doing so. Then I came to LA a few years after, um, on vacation. I was a huge Los Angeles Lakers fan. And, uh, when, and I was like, man, the weather's amazing here. I'm not going back. <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, so so ended up moving, and um, you know, I haven't haven't turned back. Love it. Been been in LA for about eight years now. Love it. And so I take you got two mobile phones, right? 181 days a year in the state of Florida, right? One one eighty one. One eighty one. So well, that, that's why I'm doing my time right now in August, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. But mate, rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid um, here here in the US. You know what's funny is I used to sell. I don't know if you know where Airheads are. Yeah, yeah. So, is, is that the sale ones? Yeah. So those, those are the small. Those are the warheads. But the Airheads are like the long, chewy candy. Mm, okay. Yep. Um, and uh, I was probably kindergarten, five years old. Uh, I was selling those for twenty-five cents at school. Got in trouble, and uh, like you can't sell candy at school. So then my mom, I bought uh, for my sixth birthday. 
um, I wanted a slushy machine. So I, I, my mama bought me a slushy machine and our apartment was right next to a pool. So I would mm. make slushies in the apartment and then walk outside and sell these for a dollar to people <laughs> at the pool. So I've been, I've been hustling since I was a kid. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And you, are your parents move here from India. Your, 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 back, your history is, your background is from, yeah, your heritage is from India originally, right? Yeah. Parent, parents are born and raised in India. My mom was born in India, but raised in London. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, but first generation American. Awesome. And how was that growing up being that kid from the immigrant family, you know, trying to make, you know, make, make a name for yourself here in the U.S.? You know, um, it's tough, right? Because I feel like Indian families, you know, you, a lot of Indian families want to stay very cultural, right? And uh, don't really want to adopt, you know, American culture and kind of want to, you know, you want to eat the same food and listen to the, the same music. And so, you know, I, I was probably a little bit further from, further away from Indian culture than than most other people. So I was like, more American than not, you know. So mm-hmm. it was it was a very interesting upbringing, you know. Mm. I could have, look even for myself. I know being Australian, I love hanging out with other Aussies. I love talking the same banter, you know, talking about cricket or meat yeah. pies or you know, very something quintessential Australian. So it, it is a, a human nature element to want to always gravitate back to some sort of heritage to feel like you belong somewhere, right? Of That's course. always you know yeah. you feel like a, a fish out of water in a new country, and it's just you, you're trying to assimilate and and sometimes having those relationships with other folks from your home country just makes you feel a little bit closer to home when you're yeah. hundreds of thousands of miles away. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine leaving, you know, my mom, dad, and, you know, going across the world, right, and not knowing anyone. It's got to be it, just very challenging, right? Right, right. Yeah. But, to, but now walk me through what you've built to date and how that, you know, you, you mentioned earlier you were a sales guy, you got you got the bug by, by buying your first property for 20,000 bucks. What then, how did you scale it to $1.5 billion? Yeah, um, you know, it's, 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 I feel like it's been a 10-year overnight story, right? We've been working yep. on this for a long time, maybe longer, you know. And um, so we went from doing the duplexes, you know, that was funded just by my own money. And then we started buying kind of larger, I'd say larger deals, but it was, you know, the next deal was a 40-unit a deal, right? Um, and, and that we, we brought in some friends and family money, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't really grow up with friends or family that had money. So that money tapped out pretty quickly. Then we started, you know, then we bought a 50 unit, sold it and then bought a hundred unit and then kind of started doing bigger, bigger deals. And when I got to LA, you know, built a better network of, of people that I knew and, and met some really good people and, um, surrounded myself with. Uh, one of my friends was a private equity guy and he's like, look, you know, your returns are great, right? Um, you should really start looking at bigger deals because you can raise some institutional capital, right? Um, uh, so, and really he was like, look, it's easier to raise 10 million than it is, you know, a hundred grand or a couple million dollars um, if the deal's good. So, you know, started finding some larger deals and used my cold calling background to called, uh, you know, a thousand people and, and one hit is a $40 million deal in Atlanta. That was in 2018. Um, you know, and the, the one of the last of the three groups that I had yet to speak with finally stroked a $15 million check. And, you know, that was kind of the beginning of it. 
but really I think the inflection point was after we purchased that deal, you know, it was a, it was a pretty big, it was 500 units almost. And we needed an asset manager to come in and help us out. So um, we hired Colt, who was our first hire uh, as asset manager. And they were coming off of, uh, they were, he worked at a company that had 20,000 units and all of a sudden the ownership decided that we don't want to be in real estate anymore. And they started to divest all of their, their holdings. And I was able to pretty much take 20 people from that company, mm. right? That was just right place, right time. And essentially brought in institutional experience. We had a team, we went from having no one to 20 people. And that really was when we, we started to take off. Um, and then, you know, I'd say over the last 50, we've, over the last 15 months, we purchased about 1.8 billion in, in deals. And, you know, from May last year, from January to May, we didn't buy one single deal. And then from May to December, we, we closed on 15 assets, right? And we probably did, yeah, we probably did 10 this year. Um, the natural thing as, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm building a company as well, is how much of a, a leap of faith was that going and hiring 20 people? Because I'm sure you just didn't have... 20 people's worth of salaries for the next two years, right? Like you got to look at what's the incomings and what's the outgoings of yeah. just asset management fees, construction management fees. Like how do you support all that? And knowing to take the bet that now looking back, you're like, that was a great bet. But at the time it would have been bloody scary because that's coming out of your pocket. It was, you know, um, and and luckily, you know, I, at the time, a lot of things kind of were go, going behind the scenes. We had just raised a $30 million GP facility, mm. right? um before these guys even come on and and so there was kind of a feel i i obviously it was a huge bet on myself and, and what i thought we were going to be able to accomplish but you know we brought on some really strong acquisitions guys that had uh really great experience in relationships that you know i was like look we're gonna do i, I had no idea we were gonna do as many deals as we did right like that, that was just kind of i couldn't have imagined that my plan was to do a billion dollars over four years originally and and we did it within 12 months you know wow. or really like six months and um so it, it 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 was it was a huge leap of faith and look had it not worked out it could have gone terribly wrong right um mm -hmm. so it, it, it was but you know i i always had this vision of well this is where i want the company to go this is what i want to you know i want to do more than where we were at and it just it worked out you know again a lot of it was luck and timing and you know uh, but very fortunate to, to to be where we are today. And and how quickly does it get to a point? You know, I've observed yourself. I've observed Ashcroft Capital, Tides Equity, some guys that sort of all started around the 2013 mark and growing quickly. Is there any advice you can have to other people about making sure you don't grow too quickly and get too far out of your skis with 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 just employees or overhead or just buying too many deals and and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I, I think there there definitely is such a thing as growing too quickly, right? And and there are significant significant growing pains that come along with just just the amount of volume we've done, and then the groups, you know, the the groups that you mentioned, I mean, tides, you know, they they've grown at a crazy Huge. clip as well, right? <laughs> just just as you know, just as fast in a short amount of time, and Ashcroft too, another great group of guys that. So, you know, look, I think what we've, what we've tried to do is try to stay ahead of the growth because the last thing you want to do is play catch up, mm -hmm. right? So we, we've historically overhired 
Um, and it's, it's worked out because we're anticipating the growth. Now you look at what's happened over the last six months and things have all of a sudden slowed down. Right. Um, so, but again, we, we see kind of, uh, this is where we're going to go. Things will pick back up and, but I, I think you need to be prepared, right. And kind of be proactive versus reactive. And I think mm-hmm. that's really been our saving graces. We, we, you don't want to play catch up when you're growing this fast, right. You, right. you want to have the systems in place. Um, and then, you know, cause things can go wrong, right. You're, you're managing a lot of money for a lot of people and you, you want to make sure all the assets are performing well too. the portfolio performance also matters, not just acquiring deals. Right. hundred percent. Is there anything yeah. in particular that just besides hiring that you would you know, make a suggestion to people out there who are looking to maybe emulate what you've created? I would say finding good opportunities is the most important part. Right. Sure. Uh, and that's probably the hardest part of our business is, is, is things are hyper competitive. Right. Um, I, I would say the relationship part of this business is extremely critical and crucial. And, and I think just getting out there and meeting as many owners and brokers and, you know, that's just that's the key part. Right. Because I, I truly believe that if you've got a really great opportunity and you're a good operator. Right. It, the rest of the stuff can will follow. Right. No, you, you make money when you buy, but you can lose it pretty quickly through bad yeah. management, and that includes property and asset management. So, um, um, what's what do you, what's your thoughts on where the market shifted? Obviously, you bought a ton of real estate in the last six months. How have you seen you know the the sort of the crystal ball, and and where do you think we're headed right now? It's funny because I think the overall the shock of interest rates rising is is I feel like it's starting to get over right, mm-hmm. um, and it's easy to underwrite where interest rates are going right. Um, once you have that, I, I think it's it, things have slowed down, and, and most of the volatility has been around debt right. So what I see is you know the the days of eighty percent leverage, you know the guys that are doing that, you're not doing that anymore right. You, you, mm-hmm. I think lower leverage is key. You want to probably go agency route. I think the fundamentals of the business are extremely strong, right? And and you're still seeing great rent growth and, and good markets, right? The same markets that you're investing in, right? We the sound demographics. Um, so uh, look, and and I think in times like this, uh, where interest rates are higher, home ownership becomes a little bit more unaffordable, right? Um, mortgages are going up. People are going to become renters, right? And or or stay renters, right? So I, I think the industry is, is po- it's a great hedge against inflation, right? So um, I feel good about where we're at. I look, cap rates have moved, right? I think where we were buying three caps, now there's fours, right? Um, so I think- you- Do you think that's going to keep changing and keep going up? Do you think we hit, like, hey, we're going to get a plateau at some point of that cap rate thing? And, and in, obviously, that's, that's tied to interest rates. Yeah, so so I, I think you know it's probably it'll settle at four and a half to five, depending on the markets and, and whatnot. I, I think you're already seeing Phoenix, Vegas, right? That you're there are four and a half already. Florida has been a little slow to follow. You're kind of low fours right now, but I, I want to say everyone wants a four and a half right now or better. And you know, uh, given given where the interest rates where we see the curve going, I think that's that should be kind of where pricing ends up shaking out. Obviously, unless they decide to keep raising rates more, then, then that that changes. But I, I feel good about that four and a half to five rate. 
For those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business, or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value-add deals, then head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you will automatically be notified about my new up-and-coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up today. Now, back into the show. Right, right. And are you seeing any of the, um, as a buyer, what you underwrote maybe six months ago is now a little bit, you know, what, what sort of delta have you seen in, in, in the, the price per pound adjustments with that cap rate now sort of expanding a little bit? Yeah, so I'd say pricing's probably down 10 to 15% from 10 to 15, where it was yeah. six months ago. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, go, keep going. Yeah, no, so, uh, you know, we're seeing that as a buyer, but also as a seller. We've, we've still been selling throughout these last few months. And, you know, uh, I, I think uh, it's probably fair to say that across the board. Do you think there's any shift in, you know, a lot of people's thoughts about just flipping stuff these days, you know, like in, in keeping it for a little bit longer term? Are you guys adjusting your models to, to hold for a maybe the true five or six years rather than flip it in two and a half to three? Yeah. So, you know, that, that's a, it's a great question because we've historically, look, we underwrite to a five, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and we never really have had to hold that long because the market's been, you know, uh, we're, we're balanced with cap rate compression and uh, you're making your money, you know, within a year, I think that's changed. So honestly, I think you're going to have to hold a little bit longer and actually execute on business plan and, and, and I think, you know, the, the, the shitty operators are going to not do well during this time. And, and it, it, the good operators will, you know, you're going to have to, again, execute and, and uh, do what you say you're going to do and, and probably hold. Because um, I, I think, look, I, I think interest rates will come back down, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when do you think that would, will happen? If you, if you you're gunned ahead, when do you think that's going to occur? I'd say like Q1 of 24, probably. 24, okay. Yeah. So you think another another year of just, you know, staying a little higher yeah. and then yeah, coming down, yep. Yeah, but I, and, and, I, and I think because of that, whatever we buy over the next 12 months is gonna be great, right? Because caps have expanded, right? Mm-hmm. And if interest rates come back down, they'll compress again. So, you know, um, I, I'm pretty bullish on, you know, the next 18, 12 to 18 months. Uh, I feel like it's a great buying opportunity. No, I think, and also there's a lot of capital still sitting on the sidelines, particularly institutional. They're just like a little bit scared, as rightly so, right? This, we, it's unprecedented how we've gone from, I think, what the the, the sofa was sub 1% and now we're, you know, up in, up in the twos, probably pushing yeah. up to three yeah. uh, in, in a period of less than six months. You know, that's, that's obviously, it's going to scare a lot of people. But I think I'm seeing, at least as a buyer, if you've hung around the hoop for long enough, you're going to start seeing some rebounds, right? People, I'm starting to see the, the brokers calling me. Now, I'm not a nowhere near as big as what you've got to. I'm, I'm aspiring, but like I'm still an active buyer. Yeah. Um, now I'm starting to see those calls coming back where probably the last 12 months, you've, you've, you've as a buyer, you've had to sort of really go out of your way to make an impression on the brokers, make them say, hey, I'm, I'm here to play. You know, I'm not just being, I'm not just blowing smoke and uh, I want to be a buyer, you know? So that obviously backs into equity. So, um, so, with that being said, are you seeing equity harder to raise with with those bigger shops starting to to, to take a pause a little bit now? Um, given your strategy of how you raise equity, it, it is. So um, I would say the 
the sentiment is starting to change a little bit right now and there's more optimism. Um, but, you know, for, I'd say for a good four or five months, you know, everyone was pencils down. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, some people say they're not, but they're window shopping and trying it's more pricing discovery to kind of keep their finger on the pulse. But there's definitely been a shift uh, in thinking. I think, like you said, brokers are now, right. All all of us, all buyers included, you know, you're, you're trying to woo the broker or the seller and saying, okay, Hey, pick me, pick me. Right. Now brokers are trying to get deals, just to get deals done. And I, my phone's never stopped. Like brokers have never called me this much, right. To get <laughs> to do deals. And so, so I think, I think a, there's a lot of opportunity out there. There's more deals. Like we can actually, you know, pick and choose deals and be very selective, which I like, right. Cause there's, there's not as much competition, but uh, equity capitalizing those deals is, is hard right now. I think there's a sense of kind of like herd mentality, right. And mm-hmm. the institutions. And everyone's sitting on the sidelines and, and no one wants to catch the falling knife, right? Because they don't know where, where pricing is going to ultimately shake out. It's almost like the, the penguin complex, right? You got the one penguin that won't jump into the water because they think a shark's circling. But once one does, then they all go in after, right? Right. right. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been difficult, right? Um, but not to say it's impossible. I think, again, if, if you're looking for good assets, good quality assets and good quality submarkets, it's still it's still possible, right? Let's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. pivot now a little bit to talking about your strategy of equity raising. You know, I've come through the friends and family bootstrapping. You you sound like you've pivoted really quickly to, to, to institutional. I've never, I've done a handful of, insti- you know, not, I don't want to say institutional, more private equity shops where they're stroking one check. Um, how have you... How do you navigate that? For those people out there, there's, you're either on one side of the coin or the other, like you're, you're, you're pro-institution and, and you just want to get it done, but you, you, know, you might be, get dragged over the coals from a, from a you know, fees point of view and splits. And then you've got the, the, you know, the capital raising, the sort of the, the crowdfunding where you've got to herd 150 cats into the boat, and, um, but you can maybe get a little bit better you know, metrics on the back end. What, what, how have you balanced that too? And, and are, you, are you doing a mix of both or do you, know, you just sort of stick into the one side right now? You know, it, there's this grass is greener, right? I feel uh-huh. like from both sides, everyone thinks one side is better than the is than what they're doing, and and honestly, I, I you're you're doing an amazing job with with the capital raising side. I wish I could do it, right? Because if I could, I would. Um, but you know, look, I think I think the institutional side, like like you said, there's pros and cons, right? I think the pros for us have been we've been able to scale, right, tremendously, right, yep. and. and there's there's infinite amounts of, amounts of money out there, right? The, they, especially even today, the, all the big shops are raising their biggest funds ever, right? The, the funds get bigger and bigger and bigger, and now the all the money is going away from hotel, hospitality, retail, all going into multi and industrial. So you know, again, it's going to start flowing back, and and you know, it's great for again our industry. But so really, what I'm starting to do is bring in a few friends alongside. The institutional. So instead of doing a 90-10 deal or 95-5, we'll say, okay, give us another 5% allotment to, as we can go raise and start to build out that platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I, do, I would like to have both buckets to raise on the syndication as well. Um, again, you, you, better fees, right? Probably better splits, but I, we definitely want to keep doing institutional deals as well um, and hopefully have both, both, both sides. Yeah, no, I think the, there is a chicken and the egg scenario, particularly in my my career, it's been you don't attract the PE firms until you've done a few reps. Yeah. 
right? So you have to go build out the syndication side. And some some folks like yourself, you know, have, have just got right time, right place, probably with connected with the right group, and it's just like it's an easy synergy and, and an easy yes. But I know, um, you know, again, to your point, grass is always greener. Like I look at the other side and think, hey, what's over there, you know? But I think in general, as you any operator, if you're building the syndication business, and I'm saying syndication in general, multifamily business, you have to always look at the North Star, at least in my opinion, to raise, to keep growing your own book of investors outside of the PE firms, right? It's yeah. got to be, it's got to be, a, um, you, you can't ever lose sight of that. But having a, a fine balance, because I couldn't go to a $100 million deal with, a syndication, right? Like you're only backing into certain size deals. Like I'm doing deals in the 25 to $40 million range because I know I can raise that much money. Now yeah. you're going to go to a $100 million deal. You're probably only going to go to a, a, a PE shop that can stroke a 20 or $25 million check. You can't, you're raising $25 million of equity from $50,000 investors at a time. It's a lot of bloody work. Yeah. Um, but but that's, that's where I think, you know, it's horses for courses. Understanding, you know, right now I'm not even sniffing those bigger deals. You probably are. And that, that's what you said before is that scale is such a, importance and, and where does that fit in your business goals of, yeah. of where you want to go so um so yeah tell me a little bit pivoting now as we come towards the end of the show you you bunch of charities you're, you're doing a bunch of work you're giving back what's first question is you know what's the goal for the biz over the next sort of 10 years and then what are you wanting to do as you're giving back to to the community and, and what what uh what projects you're involved in yeah so um you know 10 years is a it's a long time out but uh, it's we my short-term goal is to get to twenty thousand units here pretty quickly um the plan was you know end the next year we'll see if that happens and uh we want to get into development um mm-hmm. so uh, you know hopefully over the next 10 years 50 percent is acquisitions 50 percent is development uh and we're we're starting to do some built to rent projects too so you know just just venturing out a little bit from the from the acquisition side uh we've thought about bringing management in-house it's something that i still struggle with and and it's a dilemma that probably won't solve anytime soon <laughs> um but uh yeah you know just uh, look uh, we're just focused on building the best shop possible for us and and continue to provide outsized returns to our investors and find good opportunities. You know, we're all deal junkies. We just love doing deals, you know, and, mm-hmm. and just continue finding the the next good one, you know, and um, in terms of uh, community outreach and kind of charities and stuff, we, every deal we close, we, we donate to a charity of either our choosing or the seller's choosing, um, you know, and, and, and we personally kind of, do stuff with homeless charities and, and children's, you know, um, orphan charities and whatnot. Um, we run a, uh, a basketball training facility, uh, where I'm from, um, uh, in Kissimmee. And, um, that's another thing that we like to provide and give back to the kids, you know, growing up, it's expensive, you know, and, and to kind of give back to the, the less fortunate and, and, and kind of, you know, provide them with, uh, five-star facilities and, and stuff for free. And, you know, so, uh, I played basketball growing up, so it was, uh, just something I love to do. And, um, it's a fun, fun pet project. Are you building that or just going, renting the space and letting guys come along? No, and just we, we build it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So That's we're, we're going to, we're going to build out a couple more, um, now. So we, we have, 
we have a, a paid program where people pay us and then we have the the charity uh, side of it too where we we offer free services so uh, but it's it's caught on it's caught on and, and people love it the cities love it you know so that's great. Uh, we'd like to to do more of that awesome awesome stuff man well, look at the end of every show we love to dive into the top five investing tips you ready to get into it yeah mate question number one is what's the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals um so i keep i, I keep a written list of my goals um and uh, i'm kind of ocd about sketch just scratching things off so if it's on a list for me uh i'd make it a point to to, to scratch, get it off that list um but i i so i used to i used to keep and i still do the my phone screensaver is my kind of my big hairy audacious goal Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we look at our phones a hundred times a day, probably. Right. So mm-hmm. I'm seeing this a hundred times a day. And, you know, more often than not, I've achieved those goals. Uh, it may take five years, may take 10 years, but it's, it's top of mind. That's awesome. That's awesome. Question number two is uh, who's the most influential person in your career to date? That's a good question. So honestly, um, it was a, a friend of mine who actually just passed away in um, October, uh, heart attack, young guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of my best friends was like my brother and he was the, he was actually the guy that was in the private equity world and he kind of, he helped me think bigger. Right. Um, and, and start, you know, kind of reaching out to those institutional groups and making connections and, you know, help, help me kind of build the business. And this is what I had to have in place. And, you know, it was a, uh, best friend, brother, and mentor. That's, I'm so sorry to hear that, mate. It's uh, life loss like that can really uh, put things into perspective about what you're, what you're, what you're trying to achieve. Um, question number three is, what's the most influential tool in your business? When I say tool, it could be a, you know, a journal or a phone that you can't run the business out, or it could be a piece of software that just, you know, the business won't exist without, without that tool. Email, right, I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, I hear Slack going off in the background earlier. Yeah, actually, Slack's, um, so we, we were mostly working remote and uh, most of our team was like, what is Slack? I don't want to get on this. And now we use it. You know, it's like, it is the Bible for us where all, all communication goes on Slack. Obviously, your phone, you probably can't do anything these days without your phone, right? That probably might be the, the most important tool. If I didn't have it, I, didn't, I wouldn't know what to do. Um, but yeah, I think Slack, email, phone. Cool. Awesome stuff, man. Uh, question number four is, in one sentence, what's been the biggest failure in your career? What did you learn from that failure? That is a good one. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I guess it's not a failure, um, but this, this might be, this might be kind of, to your point, growing quickly and, and um, we, you know, the, the world kind of changed overnight uh, a few months ago and we had, I mean, five million dollars hard money on deposits right and we actually ended up having to walk away we, we closed most of those deals but some of the sellers weren't willing to adjust to get it mm. at the price to where we needed and we had to end up walking probably from about two and a half million dollars of deposits wow there's a lot of money you know um and uh you know that that it, again it was your we at one point we had nine deals under contract at any time so you know this was bound to happen you know but it was mm-hmm. one of those things where you run so fast and something like this changes, you know, you can kind of get stuck out there. So that was, that was a, that was a big, you know, this, this mentally getting over the fact of, you know, we've been doing so well, we had to, you know, and then having to walk away from that amount of money, it was, it was, it was hard. Right. Right. Um, but look, we're, we're, we are where we are at this point and we've moved on and 
we're back to getting deals done again. So what what are you doing differently now? Like just as a, as a segue from that? Um, I think, I think, you know, times are a little bit different now. So whereas before, like we were talking about it, it was, you weren't getting a deal unless you had hard money. It was just kind of, it was normal practice, right? Mm -hmm. That that was just the way of the world. Now, I think because of the volatility, you don't need to put up hard money anymore. Uh, We're not doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I think everyone's okay with that given, given where we are with financing and, and all that. And, uh, you know, just, uh, I think going into deals, knowing if we have partners ready to go, right. um, versus, you know, just kind of, again, the, the, it's been on fire and, you know, usually know if, you know, you got a good deal, it's easy to, not easy, but you, you should be able to find a capital partner right now. We're probably a little bit more proactive on the front end, um, before even doing that. Shopping around, making sure you've got those soft commits. Yeah, exactly. I think that's yeah. even and even on the, the syndication side. Like, I'm not taking down a deal until I'm really confident on that equity piece. Yeah. And and uh, you know, this current deal we're raising for right now, it's like we are going in parallel. Like, you're raising equity as your DD is going, as you're negotiating the PSA, and then usually by the end of DD, you're freaking 99 confident you're going to get it right. raised. And that helps you for success because, uh, you know, it gets a little different from a private equity shop. But it's, I've been there in the past where you get to end of DD, you only 50% raise, and you're like, geez, where the rest is coming from? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it comes a little bit, yeah. uh, it's right here. It's, it's <laughs> for sure, right? It's like, you know, um, the same, you know, uh, it, it's almost like every deal we did uh over the last 18 months it comes down to one partner right like mm-hmm. you know and you're like man if that one partner didn't show up what would we have done you know right that's definitely right. definitely it's scary and stressful but you know you're flying close to the you fly, flying close to the sun at that point and, yeah, uh, absolutely <laughs> well my last question is where can people reach you to continue the conversation that would be in your sphere where do they go um so my linkedin um, or Instagram, I'm on uh, Zamir Kazi, uh, and LinkedIn is Zamir Kazi as well. Awesome or our stuff. website, uh, zmrcapital.com. zmrcapital.com, awesome stuff. I, I want to thank you so much for jumping on today's show. I want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today. I think your your ability to scale really quickly, but also keeping uh, humble in what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve. And, and, and it sounds like you've had some great opportunities that have come your way, like the employment of those 20 people that really was a pivotal change in your business. And I think that uh, from my perspective, at least, it's it's understanding and taking the guts to go off and say yes to that opportunity because so many entrepreneurs with limited capital or just you know too afraid to grow quickly would have said no. You know, they would say, oh, you know, I, I don't know if I can take on 20 people. I don't know, I don't know if I want the, the, the HR problems. You know, like there's all these things that go through as as a leader and you, and you sort of kept very defiant on on your on that goal and it's obviously worked out really well for you but 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 sounds like there's been some some growing pains along the way and, and it's it's obviously shaped you as a better entrepreneur a better multifamily buyer and a better leader at the end of the day so um did I leave anything out there no you did great thanks so much for having me on man this is a lot of fun awesome brother we'll we'll, uh, we'll chat soon enjoy the rest of your week and uh, have a great weekend all right man you too well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Zamir. Remember, check out Zamir Kazi on LinkedIn and Instagram and at zmrcapital.com uh, or just set press ZMR Capital in the Google search and it'll easily come up. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. If you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. And we're going to do this all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. <laughs>